Welcome to the Forward 40 Podcast, where we highlight the experiences of 40 women of color on the rise in the nonprofit and social enterprise sectors. This is an ode to our foremothers, a healing circle of our unique experiences, and a bridge of insight and wisdom across generations. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Forward 40. Very excited for the guest that we have in the guest chair today. Today we have Valerie Redhorse Mole, who is the executive director of the Social Ventures Circle. That is a network of investors, capacity builders, um, and bridging connections in the social impact space. So welcome, Valerie. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here. Yes, very excited to have you. Uh, as I shared previously, and just for our listeners, I was drawn to you uh, because of just your eclectic background. <laughs> uh, not only are you in the social impact space, but you're also a business owner. Uh, you're a woman of Cherokee ancestry, a philanthropist, and also a filmmaker, wife, and mother. So um, just to name a few of of the aspects of your journey. I just wanted to know, like, what drew you to social entrepreneurship and specifically inspired you to lead the social venture circle? You know, it's funny uh, when you say it like that. It sounds like I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm still I'm still uh, trying some things out. But no, I I have just worked from passion my entire life. And I actually never planned to become an entrepreneur myself. And yet I was sort of thrown into it at a fairly early age. And it always came out of, um, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. And um, that's sort of how it was for me because I went to college thinking that, um, and and I did major in film. And then I also had uh, a day job where I got experience with finance, working for a very large investment bank. And I honestly thought at that young age that someone would hire me, that a big studio would hire me in the film industry and that a big investment bank would hire me in in the finance industry. And what happened is um, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm uh, American Indian and I had an opportunity to speak to uh, Senator Daniel Inouye, who's now, um, he's passed on since Mm. then. But, you know, he basically said to me, uh, you need to serve your community. Uh, We need to control our image in the media. We need Mm. to control our finances. And you really need to start your own businesses to empower others in your community and really think about both of those um, industries. Mm. And it wasn't easy, but I saw that he was right. And so that led me to start my own businesses as a film production company. And then I launched an investment bank on Wall Street. Um, And, you know, you have to find investors. And I had to draw on help from friends and family and all kinds of things. And it wasn't easy being uh, someone who was Native American. And I did not come from wealth or privilege. Um, But it was a great experience to where if you fast forward, I now teach entrepreneurialism and I encourage um, all of the, anyone who knows me, I encourage them to start their own business. And now I'm very much involved with social entrepreneurialism. And I just think that, you know, we can only do so much as an employee and we can only do so much 
um, in the in the pri- in the public sector. You know, governments and nonprofits are super important. But when you look at the chart of the money that really turns the economy, the trillions of dollars that has impact and and really affects people's lives more than any other segment, it's the business segment. It Uh. is that commerce, you know, and so I really have this passion to empower uh, people who have been previously marginalized and and from underserved communities like myself. I had no one in my family who had ever been a business owner per se. I had no one that that knew the term venture capital. Exactly, exactly. So, um, so that's sort of what, how I gravitated to all of that, just, you know, by passion, really. That is beautiful. And I, I admire that um, you were still able to find your footing in balancing the filmmaking and then also the investment banking uh, and, and leverage your, your networks to, you know, be in the position that you are today to then impart those gems and wisdom <laughs> on, um, onto the industry and the next generation. Um, to the point that you were making about, you know, like underserved communities and also uh, marginalized communities, like right now, as we're uh, grappling with the relief efforts or the recovery efforts there, um, more so around the economic impact of the pandemic on small businesses um, and business owners and specifically uh, businesses that are owned by people of color, uh, if you were to envision a better normal post-COVID and granted, I believe the recovery and the relief is going to be on a continuum, uh, what would you, what do you feel like that would look like in terms of access for individual business owners um, and for investment for institutional partners? Well, it's interesting because my view hasn't changed. I felt the same way before COVID-19. All that COVID-19 has done is really highlight the disparities and the bias in our Mm -hmm. system and how broken our systems were. And then now it's just, I mean, there are some of these businesses that probably won't recover. And it's just so tragic because um, I don't think the, the global population realized, even though there were many of us trying to send the message and out in the press and, you know, reiterating how unfair and unequitable the, the, the poverty divide is and the wealth divide is and the wealthier are getting wealthier. And, you know, there were messengers out there, but uh-huh. now suddenly, you know, the spotlight is there and people are really standing up and going, oh, well, wow, this really is unfair. And this really was, there was this huge divide. Yes. And so I think for me, it's the same desire that I had before. And that is the the world of institutional capital, which is the access to loans, access to capital, access to um, the money that, that evolves around the world and really is the economy, has to be controlled and managed by the group of, in the same proportions, I should say, as what the world looks like. So it cannot be controlled by one group of people. And, and a lot of people will say to me, so, you know, are, are you mad at white males? No, not at all. I'm married to a white male. It's not their fault. It's just that white males right now control the majority of the institutional capital in the world. Mm-hmm. And therefore, there has been this perpetuation of generational control that goes to people that look like them. It's, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's their fault. It's a system's problem. It's a uh-huh. pipeline problem. It's an access problem. It's just, it is what it is and it needs to be shown for what it is and it needs to be fixed. And so when we can gravitate to a place 
where fund managers are brown and black and red, and that means that they're supporting businesses who are brown and black and red, and they're the managers and the owners of the banks, and they're yes. the ones who are controlling the assets, we're going to have a much more equitable environment where immigrants will have access yes. to capital because there will be people in the community that understand their needs. Right now, it's just not an equitable and just system, and we have to gravitate to that. And I believe there's ways to do it, and there are people right now, a lot of nonprofits that I believe have the solutions. It's just how do we get the system to actually shift and listen and, you know, be as concerned as the rest of us are. Yes, uh, and I completely agree. There's definitely be, been movement shakers and builders uh, in the space that have been driving uh, for representative um leadership uh, at the decision-making table um, to, to drive this change and to, to shift uh, where the, the scales are in terms of who has the power in terms of an investment um, and, and also access. Um, and it's like, even with that knowledge, there's still this, well, what do we need to do? It's like some, sometimes you just need to remove yourself from, from that seat, <laughs> you know, like provide more space at the table well, for, for others. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say, though, um, it usually doesn't happen voluntarily. Mm. And a lot of people have said to me, but who has the power to make that change? And I would tell you that, that a lot of us hold power we're not even aware of. Mm. And it doesn't have to be power in, in the terms of assets. We don't have to have a lot of money in the bank. <clears throat> but I'll give you an example. Um, at Stanford, where I teach part-time, the students led a movement there called Who's Teaching Us? Hashtag mm. Who's Teaching Us? And their whole point was they wanted to be taught by people who look like them. Mm. That doesn't mean that it, there can't be white males teaching them, but there, it shouldn't be all white males. They mm -hmm. wanted it to be more representative. And what they realized is because their bodies in seats at that university hold power, their voice had power. And so they didn't have to have money to have power, but by being there and being a stakeholder in that, their voice had power. So my point is all of us who have spending power, all of us who have voting power, we have power. And if there was a movement, you know, who's holding our assets, something mm -hmm. similar. I, I want people to understand that we do have power and we do have a voice. And I do think it's our younger generation that are discovering that voice in ways that are so exciting than ever before. Yeah, thank thank you for adding that that next gen perspective because that's actually one of the things that I wanted to um, provide. You know, the opportunity for you to share more about. You know, like in addition to your work um, at SVC, you're also you know teaching a course at Stanford Entrepreneurialism for Racial Equity and Social Impact. And I, you know that that is it, it's very specific and very much needed in the classroom um and it's primed at, at the point where the younger generation is actually considering what their career pathways can be and entrepreneurship is a viable option um can you just tell us more about like the genesis of that course and what do you what else are you hearing from um the next generation of social entrepreneurs well, first, I will tell you, it is a great joy in my life. And um, my own daughter was in the class last year. She was a junior at Stanford last year, and now she's a senior and she's a TA. So wait, she was, she, in, would, she was in your class? She was in my class. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and um, 
as a as a young native student, you know, she uh, she wanted to take the class because it is offered through the comparative study of race and ethnicity that department. And uh, what's interesting though is when I first was asked to consider teaching, everyone on staff at Stanford and in my department thought that I would need to teach at the Graduate School of Business because. Mm of my background in finance and entrepreneurialism and all of that. And I said, absolutely not. When I look at the demographics of the Stanford Business School, and it's one of the best in the country or in the world, there's no doubt. But the demographics of who gets in don't look to me like the communities I want to work in. And Mm -hmm. so when I look at the undergrad diversity, though, of the students at Stanford, they get an A plus. They have so many wonderful, diverse, and it's not just you know, racial ethnicity, it's mm-hmm. lived experience, it's gender identity, it's mm-hmm. um, country from, you know, countries from, from where you come. And so it is so such a wonderful mix of students and, and bright, but not just bright in a book learning sense. These are bright students that want to make a difference in the world. And my daughter was actually very embarrassed because I cry <laughs> in this class when, when students, when it clicks and students yeah. really get the content and they realize that we're trying to start businesses that don't just make a profit, but that make a difference Correct. in the world. Mm-hmm. And I use the word regenerative. Mm-hmm. Sustainable isn't enough. Regenerative actually repairs the earth or repairs people place mm-hmm. so that you're actually making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. When the students get that and they design a business that brings back an endangered language or connects affordable housing to an underserved community Mm -hmm. or brings natural organic food to their neighborhood back where they came from that was suffering from diabetes. I mean, I start to cry. Mm -hmm. And my daughter says, Mom, you're embarrassing me. You cannot cry in class. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I think um, in answer to your question, I would say that I, I feel that they really get it. And in fact, a couple of students said to me uh, in, uh, in the very beginning of the class, I do an introduction on social impact and ex- what the definitions are and what it really means and why we need to integrate these concepts into our business. And I've had a couple of students say to me, um, but why wouldn't we automatically build that in? Why would there ever be a business that didn't have social impact? And it's so interesting to me that a young 18 to 21 year old has that perspective and doesn't realize how many businesses Correct. have raped and pillaged our Correct. land and our Correct. people and our planet and have no idea that impact would even be a part of the business plan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Oh, and then, it, but, and that's where the inspiration is, right? That, oh. uh, you know, like this a growing generation that is, that has that inclusive and equitable lens in how they are approaching their learning and then also the world of work and what it is that they want to create and they want to be a part of, um, which is a call to action for us. Yeah. And, and I would also add something that I observed that I think is very important for those of us that identify with either an underserved or marginalized community of any type. There's something about the students that I noticed that is very refreshing. I come from a generation, particularly of of Native Americans, that have some anger. Um, We've been through a lot in my Mm -hmm. community, as Mm -hmm. has the black community, as has the Latinx community. I mean, we can go back and point to government programs and racism. I mean, I mean, you, you, you know, the history. Yes. And, and so I have often been working with people in my own community where I have to say to them, you know, I'm not sure that attitude is going to get us forward. You know, if you're going to go in with just real anger and what I've noticed about these students, as an example, I have a a young woman who um, identifies with the LGBTQI community and uh, uh, she identifies as a transgender 
and um, she's building a company that has gender neutral clothing. And in addition to being a for-profit clothing line that is eco-friendly and has, you know, beautiful designer clothing, she's doing an entire educational section on the different pronouns and the different, mm. um, you know, just understanding mm. about the, the, the gender, um, you know, narrative, I mm-hmm, should say. Mm-hmm. Because I, and, and she's not doing it. And actually, I think she uses they as a pronoun, and I apologize. But, but the way that it's being done, is not in anger. It's yeah. not in any sort of, with any sort of attitude other than this is an education mm-hmm. because we realize that what we're doing is important and you, someone else might not understand what we're doing. And I love that some of these students, almost all of them come to the table with a mind for let's educate, let's come together, let's hold hands, let's move forward, let's find solutions, as opposed to I've been wronged and let's get even. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you thank you for for sharing that. And also congratulations to the, you know, the student for um, finding a way to bridge their own identity with uh, a learning component uh, to to their venture. Um, It's like there there's definitely space for for that anger. Um, Definitely don't want (laughs) to dismiss that or for for any listeners to you know, receive from you that, that, that isn't like valid emotion or valid, you know, context, um, just from a historical perspective. Um, Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, no, absolutely. There is absolutely a valid reason to have that anger. And I support my own community who has, has PTSD from my uh, father was put on a relocation program when he was and taken away from his parents into a boarding school. So mm. I no, I, I'm not suggesting that we can't be angry and that we shouldn't be angry. And I, I just support a lot of the protests that we've done that have been, you know, so important in our history. But what I what I was trying to really point out was that this generation, I believe, sees the need for that reconciliation mm. and that forward motion mm. and how they plan to achieve it isn't to lead with that anger, but it's to lead with this um, you know, more of a, a business sense and mm-hmm. not to hold a sword, but to maybe hold a briefcase, you know, mm-hmm. and let, let's mm-hmm. go forward in a way that can actually have more impact than just, just the anger. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I, I like that point about regeneration, um, and also reconciliation, mm-hmm. um, which is, I guess, connects to like silos that have been created, um, within communities, like within communities of color, but then also, um, with, you know, outside of that, (laughs) you know, like white communities and then communities of color. And I guess more specifically in reflecting on what it means for, um, women of color, entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders, um, as a nonprofit executive yourself, like what are like, I guess a few things, maybe three that, you feel that we couldn't do to re-empower ourselves in spaces where we've been traditionally left out of? Well, one thing that I noticed when I um, came from working with tribes, which I did for over 20 years, into the social venture circle, um, where I'm the executive director, as you mentioned. And, and social venture circle, by the way, has a almost 40-year history in the impact investing space and the business, you know, as a force for good. They have some of their founders were, you know, Ben and Jerry's and Seven Mm -hmm. Generation, you know, the Mm -hmm. old wonderful companies Mm -hmm. that were really pioneers. And so 
Um, they've been doing this work for a very long time. And one of the first things I noticed when I met with um, all of our members and then all of our kind of what I call ecosystem partners, mostly nonprofits, and many of them are nonprofits focused in, in a particular community, I noticed what I would call these silos. Yeah. And it wasn't a real negative thing. But, you know, as an example, there are over 4,000 organizations in the U.S. focused on clean water. And that's that's great. There's nothing wrong with that, except they're all doing different things. Yeah. And consequently, we don't have yeah. one big aggregate movement that's making a big enough difference. It's like these wonderful incremental points of light. Yeah. <laughs> and and so what we've started to really, and this isn't just my viewpoint, it's it's everyone's viewpoint, um, right now, especially with the sort of post-COVID-19 fallout, is we can continue to work in silos as black women or red women or water conservationists, and we will do good work. But what if we put aside any differences and, and looked at our commonalities and our common goals and created those big social movements, those big political reformations, those mm. big things that can happen, kind of like what Martin Luther King did, what, what Gloria Steinem did, you know, combining efforts. And it doesn't mean that you can't continue to do your local effort or whatever mm -hmm. it is that you're focused on, but if we can do it together, and I would say if I had you asked for three things, I would say, uh, think of the power of network. Mm -hmm. Think of no scarcity mindset. Don't think of other people mm -hmm. as your competitor. That's a big one in my community. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then think of common goals. How do we reach those common goals? And it, it breaks down into teamwork typically. And I am a huge sports fan. I think you know that. I have a husband <laughs> who plays in the NFL. My daughter is a beach volleyball player at Stanford and my son, I mean, all of my kids play. And so I am that quintessential team mom. And I look at everyone through the lens of, you know, you're my place kicker and you're my offensive lineman and you're my running back and we're all going to do our job and we're going to do the best we can do to win the Super Bowl. And so if we work together, let's go win the Super Bowl. And um, if that means weird and unusual partnerships and collaborations, I love it. Mm. <laughs> Similar to that, um, I know that sometimes what holds people back from asserting um, their their positional power, uh, their authority in spaces to to network. Um, some of the things that you know fall into those limitations is kind of well, I don't have the title. <laughs> um, I, I I'm not the executive in this room. And um, as an executive, for those that are you know, struggling with, I don't necessarily have the title to back up this, you know, these wonderful recommendations. Like, what, what would you say to um, those emerging leaders? Well, first of all, I've never been one to like titles. Um, I know they're sort of a necessary evil, but I think they um, sometimes limit people. And I, especially working with students at Stanford who are coming, just coming into the workforce, I think everyone should just be you know, everything, <laughs> everything that you can be should be your title. But um, I think a key point on this topic, though, is communication. Hmm. So I have been a CEO 
of every single enterprise I've ever worked for, uh, either CEO or CFO or executive director. But I've been, you know, in charge of hiring and firing and people have reported to me. And I have always said, come to me and talk to me. If you want to do something and it may not fall into what you think your job description is, I am all about flexibility. But, you know, I want you to talk to me. And I I tell that to my students at Stanford, communication. If you can't make a deadline for some reason, just talk to me. So I think communication is underestimated in the business world. And there are people who stay silent and it could be fear-based. It could be because of of years and years of oppression. And, you know, there's lots of reasons people stay silent. It could be the gender gap. Uh Um, But I as someone who has been in a position of leadership in most of my enterprises, I encourage communication and just open and honest communication because that's where I think you can then start to really see strengths and have people spread their wings where where maybe it wasn't in the job description or in the title. And and what does that matter? And then I also think it's important. And I learned this from a film I made about Wilma Mankiller, who was the first Mm. female elected principal chief of the Cherokee nation. And she was the most amazing leader um, and did more for our people than almost any leader ever. And she said, you also have to work with those you disagree with and you have to listen to them. So that communication also goes to those people that you don't like to work with, that you don't necessarily agree with at the end of the day. (laughs) I know it's not easy. Um, It's very biblical too, but it's not easy. But, But what she said is often integrating their viewpoints into solutions makes for better solutions because she's not just coming at it with her point of view. It makes for a 360 viewpoint. doesn't mean everyone gets their way, but it means that you have a broader view. And that was a really important learning point for me when I was doing the research on the film, because I always did that somewhat, but I realized that is hard to do. But when you talk about titles and, you know, the space you're supposed to be in and guardrails and all of that, just, you know, break them down, look at things with a 360 and work together and communicate. And I think you get a lot further along. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess that, so that woman that important, that imparted that wisdom onto you kind of like segues into, um, you know, my, my question about like just tangible insight, um, in addition to the, the wisdom that you have already shared around like either whether there are particular resources, social venture, um, or entrepreneurial resources that, uh, you would recommend, uh, for our audience. So whether it's like books or networks, um, maybe like, I don't know, four or five (laughs) that you, that you would recommend. um... I uh I ha- I have a list of so many but I I picked 5 for you. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> so so first I want to, I want people to um take a look at our website because right now we're doing webinars that are free and they're on every type of topic to help people through COVID-19 from how to do better public speaking on a virtual <laughs> format mm. um to how to access loans to how to reinvent yourself. I mean there's all there's so much really really good information. Um, and you, I think you saw the one I did with Natalie yes. on uh, the bias and the CARES Act. So our website is svcimpact.org. And I can send all these to you so you can yes. post them somewhere. Mm-hmm. And then we work very closely with the advocacy arm 
of kind of our our ecosystem, uh, and they're called the American Sustainable Business Council, A-S-B-C-O-U-N-C-I-L dot org. And they do whatever movement we might be working on around sustainable food or human rights, you know, you name it, um, they do the advocacy because often you need legislation that supports whatever Uh movement you're Uh trying to build. And then um, the number one book that I recommend for entrepreneurs of color and women is Leapfrog by yes. Natalie Molina Nino. And, <laughs> and I also say you have to follow her because that woman is just stirring up a storm right yeah, now. Yeah, she is. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and then w- another woman that she's working with right now uh, addressing the bias in the CARES Act is Morgan Seinman. Hmm. And she wrote a book called Real Impact. And that's a very strong book uh, explaining how impact really is viewed and kind of w- what it really means when we talk impact, especially in our investments. Mm. And then the final uh, website, it's a really, really interesting um, group and it's purpose-economy.org. Hmm. Okay. They're actually out of Europe and, and Europe is way ahead of America, by the way, around impact and equity and inclusion and all of that. Um, and this group, it has developed a true model for business that is called uh, steward ownership as opposed to Mm. shareholder ownership. And it actually, when people say to me, well, if you want to replace capitalism with a more, you know, just and and equitable capitalism, how would you do it? And I say, well, look at this website. They actually Mm. have a business model that says, here's how you can structure a company that, that has employee ownership and community ownership and steward commitments um, into the business model. So it's not all about a few VC investors getting billions on an exit. And, and it's a much different model. So wow, are, thank, you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll of definitely course. share all of those. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that people can definitely have the hyperlinks to both the books and the, the websites. Thank you so much, Valerie. Of course. So um I, I definitely want to give honor and credence to your heritage and your ancestry. Um, and it's just very important for, for me, also for our listeners, that we are able to highlight and be very intentional uh, in our representation uh, and in sharing how how incredible we are, you know, as, as a collective community of, of women of color, and then also honoring our unique differences. So I wanted to know if there was anything, you know, from your, your ancestry, your heritage that you draw upon to keep you grounded in the work. Absolutely. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll be honest, anyone who's worked with tribes, modern day tribes will tell you we have our own set of issues. um, (laughs) But the rich heritage is so amazing. And what I, you know, draw upon and just, you know, what keeps me uh, grounded and also keeps me wanting to continue to work with my community is that word community. Mm. Um, There is such a strong sense of community, even if people are fighting and disagreeing and, you know, all the stuff that goes with those types of um, issues, the community is there for each other. Mm. I mean, they have, they they support their elders, there's local farming and fishing, and there's traditions. And, and the other part that for me is so important is 
the integration of spirituality into that community. And it, it's not as if it has to be one type of spirituality. I happen to be a Christian believer. Yes. But what I notice about my community, first of all, I've never met an atheist Native American. There might exist one, but I have never met mm. anyone from my community who's, who does not believe in a creator mm. a God, even if it's not my particular denomination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I also notice that my community doesn't go to church for an hour on Sunday. They might, but it's integrated into the rest of their life. Mm. They're often putting tobacco on the ground as a way of like giving something back when you take something, if they pick something, you know, and there's prayer and there's sage to cleanse in, in everything we do before meetings, before business, you know, is transacted, even you go into Denny's on the Navajo reservation. And I mean, they have, you know, different types of ceremonies before you eat and it's sort of interesting. Yeah. And so I I would love to see more of that integrated into what I would call Western modern Mm -hmm. American society, because I feel what we've done is, and by we, I mean, you know, I'm talking about the the, the entire society, not me. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, it, it's become very compartmentalized. I, you know, people do go to church on Sunday, but it's very much, I'm going to go here for an hour and then I'm going to go live my life however I want to live it. And I'm not necessarily going to remember what happened in that hour. Yes. And it, it just doesn't feel like community and spirituality and those values are integrated through every waking mm-hmm. moment. Yes. And that's what I think we need to take away from our Native brothers and sisters who, who value those values and traditions through everything. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I completely, completely support that. Um, as a woman of faith myself, you know, um, I agree that sometimes you, whether it's like, Oh, okay, well, I'm just going to tune into this service now, or I'm just going to, and I, and I say tune in because now it's mostly like virtual. virtual, (laughs) (laughs) And then every other day of the week, it's like you for, you forgot the principles that you're, (laughs) that you're working towards, you know, like a better life and, um, treating your neighbor and just, just living in this world. So, so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And um, as we are at our close, Valerie, um, we end with a tea affirmation, um, an inspirational um, word of wisdom that you would have for our listeners. So what would your tea affirmation be? Yeah, this is very special to me. So I learned this um, word actually before I made the film about Wilma Mankiller, but then it was really um, noted in in her life and her style. And that word is gadugi, G-A-D-U-G-I, and it is a Cherokee word. And the word gadugi means in a good way for the benefit of the community. Mm. So it, it really talks about pure of heart and doing things for the right reasons, mm. but not just for yourself and not even just for your immediate family, but for the good of everyone around mm. you. Beautiful. And it is Gadugi, correct? Gadugi, yes. Wonderful, Gadugi. wonderful. Thank you so, so much, Valerie. Um, oh, thank you. How, how do, I mean, how do people stay in touch with you or just like follow, you know, your work, whether it's your, your filmmaking or just like your, your professional journey, how should people connect with you? 
Well, I'm on LinkedIn, and I think um, that that has, you know, how to reach me at SVC Impact. It has how to reach me if you just want to reach out about a film. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think LinkedIn might be the easiest way. But if you Google me, you're going to find several ways to email <laughs> me. And, and so I do prefer email because um, these days I I just have a lot to do, and um, I get an email and I can, you know, and I also have an assistant who reminds me of the emails. Yes, and she's answer. awesome. She's awesome. Yeah, <laughs> she is awesome. Well, thank, thank you, you. Thank you so, so much, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Valerie, uh, just for lending your voice and being one of our 40 and uh, for imparting your wisdom. Oh, thank you. Have a great, great weekend. And I will uh, hopefully talk to you soon. Yes, thank you so much. Until we connect again, sip, sis. Say la, share, and continue to serve.